When searching for the truth, some missing persons cases have very little to go off of. Then there are those cases which almost have too much information, making the truth even harder to locate than the person. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. The exclusive clip you're about to hear is from our episode on Maura Murray, a young woman who crashed her car and went missing 18 years ago, and whose story features 18 years worth of twists, turns, and supposed truths. Follow Disappearances free on Spotify to finish the episode and hear new ones. Every Thursday, we'll explore the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today's episode will feel a little different. I'll explain why at the end, but you won't hear me interject or provide much commentary throughout. My goal is to stick to the facts as much as possible, as best as I know them. It won't be easy though. To tell the story of this disappearance, you need to trust people. There are so many unknowns that if you don't take everyone's word at face value, you'll have almost nothing to go on. But in order for all of their stories to make sense together, someone has to be mistaken or lying. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman who disappeared after crashing her car on a dark, winding road one winter's night in 2004. It's one of the most complex and unnerving cases I've ever covered and it set the internet on fire with rumors and speculation. February 9th, 2022 marked the 18th anniversary of the day she went missing. Her name is Maura Murray. To be totally honest, this is an intimidating case to cover. There's so much information out there on it. There are entire podcasts dedicated to it. It feels like an impossible task to cover it all in one episode, but I'm just going to dive in, stick to the facts, and try my absolute best to do it justice. Let's start on the day Maura Murray went missing. February 9th, 2004. Maura is a 21-year-old nursing student at UMass Amherst. Classes are canceled for the day due to a snowstorm. They'll resume in the morning, but Maura won't be there. At 1.24 p.m., she sends an email to a professor. She hands in her homework assignments early and says she'll be out for the rest of the week. There's been a death in her family. It's a lie. There hasn't been any death. After she hits send, Maura packs up her things as if she's going on a trip. She takes toiletries, makeup, her medication, her school textbooks, and a few days worth of clothes, including athletic gear. She loads everything into her black 1996 Saturn sedan and leaves. Around 3.15 p.m., Maura arrives at a local ATM and withdraws $280, which is nearly all the money she has to her name. Footage from the bank's video cameras shows she's alone when she arrives and when she leaves. 
Next, she drives to a nearby liquor store and purchases $40 worth of alcohol. She's alone there as well. Sometime around 4.30 p.m., Mora leaves the area and drives north toward New Hampshire in the direction of the White Mountains. She has roughly an hour of daylight before sunset, but there's no telling how long it will take her to get to her destination because no one knows where she's headed. She's told a friend or two something vague, like she's going home for a family emergency, but her family lives in Hanson, Massachusetts. And they, along with everyone else in Mora's life, have no idea she's left. Based on how far she travels, Mora spends the majority of the next three hours driving. The next time she's seen, it's on the side of the road in New Hampshire. At 7.27 p.m., a woman named Faith Westman calls 911 about a single car accident outside her house. She lives in Haverhill, New Hampshire, along Route 112, a small two-lane highway with one lane traveling in either direction. To Faith, it looks like a car has gone over the curb near a hairpin turn right outside of her house. It's now stuck in a snowbank facing west. She doesn't know if anyone is injured. It's dark and there are no streetlights, but according to police dispatch logs, she sees a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. Minutes after Faith places her 911 call, a bus driver named Butch Atwood sees the same car on the side of the road and pulls over to help. It's Mora. She appears to be alone, but she's visibly shaken, apparently leaning against her car for support. The damage to the Saturn is significant. Both front airbags have been deployed, the radiator's busted, and there's a crack on the driver's side window. The car is clearly inoperable, but Mora seems uninjured, or at least Butch doesn't notice any blood. He asks if she needs any assistance, but Mora declines, saying she's already called AAA. Which isn't true, she hasn't, and Butch knows she couldn't have called. He lives close by, and there's no cell phone service in the area. It's a total dead zone. Mora's a young woman speaking to a much older, much larger man. Butch is in his 60s, tall and about 350 pounds. Rather than push the issue any further, he drives to his home only about 100 yards away and calls police to report the accident. This call goes through at 7.43 p.m., 16 minutes after Faith Westman's, so officials are already on their way. Sergeant Cecil Smith arrives at the scene just three minutes later. And Mora is gone. She's nowhere in sight. Sergeant Smith finds Mora's car locked, but through the window, he sees a box of Franzia wine behind the driver's seat. There's also some type of red liquid on the driver's door and ceiling of the car. He does a quick scan of the area, but there's no one in sight. When he walks around back, he finds a rag stuffed in the tailpipe of her car. Now, I wanna take a second to slow down and really walk through the timeline of events here. Let's say it took Butch Atwood seven minutes to drive the 100 yards to his home and call 911. That would be a fairly generous estimate, and it would mean he left Mora around 7.36 p.m. Sergeant Smith arrived at 7.46 p.m., meaning the window of time in which Mora disappeared is only 10 minutes long, at most. And for the duration of it, there were witnesses who could have seen something. 
For starters, Faith Westman was home. She could obviously see Maura's car from her windows. Her house was closest to the accident, on the inside of the sharp turn. And though this stretch of highway is basically in the middle of the woods, there were three other houses with views of the crash, each set back from the road. John and Virginia Marat were watching from their kitchen. They reportedly saw someone walking around the car and spending some time near the trunk. But the point is, even in those 10 minutes, there were eyes on the road, even if only periodically. And the window of time in which Mora could have disappeared shrinks even further if you consider the testimony of another witness, a woman who drove past Mora's crash that night. Though she was only known as Witness A for years, in 2017, Karen McNamara publicly revealed her identity for the first time. According to Karen, on the night Mora disappeared, she was driving home from work down Route 112 when she passed by Mora's accident. Karen slowed down, came to a stop, and looked over her shoulder to make sure everything was okay. She didn't see any people on the side of the road, but she saw two cars facing each other, nose to nose. One of them was Mora's Saturn, and the other was an SUV police cruiser with the numbers 001 written on it. Assuming the situation was under control, Karen kept driving. Once she regained cell service a couple miles down the road, she made a phone call. Based on her phone records, that call happened at 7.52 p.m. This places Karen at the scene sometime around 7.37, so potentially just a few seconds after Butch Atwood's bus left, and about nine minutes before Sergeant Smith arrived. I'll say that again. Karen apparently saw a police cruiser at the scene of Mora's accident nine minutes before police records say any officer arrived. Of course, Karen doesn't think much of this until later when she's watching news coverage of Mora's disappearance. When they ask if anyone has information, she immediately calls the police and tells them everything she can remember about that night. When she mentions the 001 squad car, the official she's speaking to acts surprised. They even follow up a day or two later asking her again, are you sure it was 001? And they're right to be shocked. See, that's the car typically reserved for the chief of police in Haverhill, Jeffrey Williams. According to official records, Chief Williams wasn't at the scene that night. It was just Sergeant Smith. Now, regardless of what's true and what's not, I can confidently say that Karen McNamara's statements are ignored by investigators. SUV 001 never appears in Morris case files. So with that in mind, here's what did make it into police reports from that night. 10 minutes after he arrives, Sergeant Cecil Smith is joined by other officials including EMS personnel and members of the local fire department. Together with Butch Atwood, they search the area, and they focus their efforts on the area west of the accident, even though all evidence suggests Mora was headed eastbound down Route 112. They don't find Mora, and though there's snow on the ground, they don't find footprints either. Eventually, Mora's car gets unlocked, and officials find some of her personal belongings scattered inside. But her cell phone, credit cards, and backpack are all gone. Sergeant Smith finds an open Coke bottle with red liquid in it, 
that he says had a, quote, strong alcoholic odor. EMS personnel spend less than 15 minutes at the scene. Firefighters are gone within the hour. And at 9.27 p.m., another dispatch call pulls Sergeant Cecil Smith away. Eventually, Mora's car gets towed and impounded. Meanwhile, back in Massachusetts, Mora's family assumes she's still at UMass. They have no idea she's vanished off a street corner in another state. Nobody bothers to call them until the following afternoon. Around 2.30 p.m., Mora's father, Fred, receives a voicemail saying his car was found abandoned. As far as I can tell, it doesn't mention Mora. He's working a job out of state though, so he doesn't listen to it. But news eventually reaches the Murray family. And a few hours later, Fred's oldest daughter, Kathleen, calls and breaks the news to him. Mora's missing. He immediately calls the Haverhill Police Department. He insists that a search begin in earnest. It's been almost 24 hours since his daughter was last seen. But by this point, officials haven't declared Mora missing yet. They tell Fred their plan is to wait. If Mora hasn't turned up by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department will start combing the area. Fred arrives in Haverhill before sunrise on Wednesday, February 11th. It's been almost 36 hours since his daughter was last seen. Around dawn, a ground and air search begins. 12 hours after, police ignored Fred's requests. Helicopters, officers, volunteers, and a canine team canvass the area around where the accident occurred. They check local motels, hand out flyers, and using a leather glove found in her car, a search dog traces Morris' scent up the road to about 100 yards east of the accident, and then abruptly stops. The trail goes cold. Night falls, and no other significant evidence is found. In the weeks after Morris' disappearance, officials conduct additional searches. More helicopters and canine units are brought in, along with the FBI. Nothing is found in a two-mile square radius of the accident. Investigators question witnesses, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family. The inherent mystery of what happened attracts attention from media outlets all over the country. As it does, a brand new social media platform named Facebook starts gaining popularity, and articles about Morris' disappearance start appearing in people's feeds. Complete strangers from around the world like, share, discuss, investigate, and speculate on what happened. But before I go any further forward in time, I want to go back to discuss what was happening in Mora's life leading up to that night. Because one of the biggest unanswered questions everyone still has in this case is, where was Mora going and why? Thank you for listening. To finish our episode on the mysterious case of Maura Murray, be sure to follow Disappearances free on Spotify. You can also hear more about this complex story in next week's episode, where I'll be interviewing Maura's older sister, Julie. You do not want to miss it. <laughs>